Hi there, and welcome back to Dam the River. I'm your host, James Macbeth Dan. Episode 3, Power and Progress. In this series, I'm diving into the history of hydroelectric power in New Zealand, looking at the impact this technological shift had on the country's growth and development. In the first episode, I looked at some of the early schemes and the first foray of the government into this sphere. Episode 2 looked at a couple of the larger schemes in the period between the two world wars and the social changes brought by both the availability of power and the organisation of the labour who supplied it. In this episode, we're going to look at the post-war consolidation of hydropower and how both power and dams played a major role in shaping New Zealand's post-war drive towards modernity. It's been a while between episodes. I've had to prioritise some projects that paid, but one of those was related to something covered in the first episode. Over at the spin-off, I've written up the story of Boris Daniel, the Russian who skied on a pair of Captain Scott's skis to restore power to Christchurch in 1918. I went a bit deeper into the story, trying to find the skis at the centre of it. So if you're interested in that, do head over to the spin-off and look for my entry in the A Single Object series. The 1950s and 60s were the golden age of giant hydroelectric power stations in this country. They were built to serve the annual increases in power consumption as the country grew and modernised in the boom years following the Second World War. To quote from James Balich in Paradise Reforged, the increase in demand ran at an annual rate of around 12% between 1949 and 1972. At first, Each island met its own demand, and by the end of the 1950s, the capacity of the northern lakes and rivers, especially the Waikato, was reaching their limit. The North and South Islands had each established their own grid systems in the 1930s. Electricity was seen as the great moderniser, a force for good, but as we will touch on later, this progress came at a cost. During the Second World War, hydropower wasn't exactly the most pressing priority. Even if the focus hadn't been on busting Nazis, it would have been difficult to make much progress. The war effort was absorbing not just a huge amount of money, but also most of the labour needed for major projects. On top of that, much of the heavy machinery needed for construction or operation came from Western Europe or America, who had turned their heavy industries towards total annihilation. Despite all this, demand on the electricity network continued to increase year on year. We're now going to take a step back and look at that demand. At the end of the First World War, hydro was still far from dominant, although in the next decade it was in the ascendancy. In 1920, almost half the generating capacity in the country was gas, steam and oil, and these sources generated around 30% of all electricity. A decade later, gas, steam and oil was just 18.4% of the generating capacity and just 8.2% of power generated. Electricity was a key to industry. It was taking over street and domestic lighting, as well as powering trams. By the end of the 20s, it was moving into the home, with the electric stove starting to replace the gas cooker. Other domestic appliances then followed, with the iron, then electric water heating, being the next major consumers. The all-electric home was meant to relieve women from the drudgery of domestic work and replace the domestic servant with the electric servant. This sounds quaint and sexist now, but as the war effort took more men, the ability of women to join the workforce was crucial to the economy continuing to function, and reducing the amount of time spent doing quote-unquote women's work in the home was key to enabling this. Electricity was rapidly taken up by the dairy industry. Milking machines reduced the amount of time required to milk a cow, allowing for the expansion in the size of dairy herds. Electric water heating allowed for the sterilisation of water, which improved food safety practices. 
With electricity crucial for work on the farm, it was also rapidly taken up by the farmhouses too. By 1936, 80% of farmhouses were connected to the electrical grid, a remarkably high number, especially given the isolation and distance between most farms. While the Waitaki scheme was being built through the Depression, in 1932, the National Expenditure Committee recommended that no further hydro schemes be built for the time being. When the first Labour government was elected in 1935, with its strong connection to the hydro dam at Waitaki, they actually reduced the proportion of the public works budget that went to hydropower, shifting the focus to railways and roading. When the war broke out in 1939, emergency electricity regulations were issued under the wider Emergency Regulations Act. This gave Frederick Kissel, who had been chief electrical engineer since the death of Lawrence Burks in 1924, extremely broad powers as the electricity commissioner. These included the absolute control of the generation, transmission, distribution, sale and use of electric energy throughout New Zealand. This had a serious effect on depressing the growth of supply throughout the war period. This was compounded by the shift of industry towards the war effort, with New Zealand dependent on technical equipment imported from the more advanced industrial economies who were now obsessed with blowing each other apart. But while the growth in supply was restricted, demand was still increasing. Though it was expanding at a much slower rate than in the previous decade, demand for electricity was still increasing, and this was creating serious supply challenges. Restrictions had to be made with limits placed on the use of heaters and thermostats being installed on water heaters, which made up a staggering 40% of domestic use. With engineering, labour and capital all tied up with the war effort, the government wasn't able to expand supply with new power stations, although there were expansions made to existing stations. Extra generation installed at Piri Power in 1943 and 1944 provided some temporary relief to the supply challenges in the North Island. The end of the war in Europe didn't mean an immediate end to restrictions. The government was unable to even provide extra lighting for the peace celebrations. As the country moved into peacetime, it was clear that demand was far outstripping supply and that the government would need to rapidly expand its generation capacity. Kissel predicted that electricity demand would increase at 8.5% per year following the war. He was pretty much on point. From 1948 until the late 1960s, demand increased an average of 8.1% a year. This was a doubling of demand per decade. Of course, Kissel didn't know that the reality would match his prediction, but set the department to plan for a 10% annual increase in generation capacity. New Zealand had embraced electricity, especially domestically. By 1955, domestic usage was over 60% of the total use. By comparison, in the mother country it was about a third, while in the USA it was just a quarter. This was in part due to the country's lack of a power-hungry industry, which would come later, but also the rapid uptake of power in the home. In 1948-49, when domestic consumption was 57% of the total, water heating took up a staggering 27% of New Zealand's power. By 1965, there were 593,000 electric ranges in the kitchens of the country, of which the population was just 2.5 million people. New Zealand had become one of the most electrical nations in the world. Hydroelectric dams are big projects. They don't happen quickly. It usually took seven or eight years from sign-off and cabinet to water flowing through the turbines. When the war finished, the government was playing catch-up. In 1946, the State Hydroelectric Department was formed, taking over responsibility from the Public Works Department. The Waikato River was identified as the most logical place for the next development. It had lots of water, and it was close to the main population centres in the top half of the North Island. 
It was an ideal place to start. The Waikato is the longest river in the country, with the most stable flow rate. Taupo is the largest lake in the country, so acts as a great storage lake, today providing around 15% of the country's on-lake water storage. And the drop from Taupo to Cambridge is about 335 metres, providing a good amount of gravity to harness. The first scheme on the Waikato was actually Horahora, which was mentioned back in episode 1. The next, Karapiro, ended up flooding Horahora and creating the lake that is now known mostly for rowing regatta. Investigations for the Karapiro scheme started in 1938, and it was approved by the Cabinet in 1940. However, due to the shortages of labour and machinery caused by the war, not much happened for quite some time. For most of the war, it had less than half of the manpower that it needed. Work was suspended in 1942 because of labour shortages and was virtually at a standstill in 1943, when the 200 men on site were only about a quarter of what was needed. Of those men who were actually on the site, a reasonably high percentage were Māori. Across the Waikato schemes, they made up about 19% of the total workforce by 1947, rising to 23% by 1950. Given the shortage of manpower, construction used more machinery than previous projects. The government also negotiated with the New Zealand Workers' Union to provide better working conditions to try and retain the men that they could find. These included a 40-hour working week for all public works employees, improved living conditions and wages, and extended holidays and leave. At Karapiro, the dam itself is a concrete arch dam, 335 metres long and just over 50 metres high. The diversion tunnel was built first, completed in September of 1943. The workforce then increased as work on the dam ramped up, with 700 men on site in 1944, rising to 1,000 in 1945 and peaking at 1,136 in 1946. The government was starting to feel the pressure of electricity shortages and dedicated more men and resources to getting Karapiro into service. The dam was finished in 1947 and the diversion tunnel was partially closed to start the filling of the lake. Around 25,000 people came to watch as the lake filled with the rising waters overrunning the public works camp, a bridge, part of the state highway, and the Horahora power station. The 35-year-old power station was kept running as long as possible due to the extreme demands on supply. Engineers and salvage gangs waited until the last possible moment before removing whatever could be saved. Karapiro began generating in May of 1948, with three 30-megawatt turbines producing 90 megawatts in total. Seeing the potential for further schemes on the Waikato over the next decade, the government then decided to address the issue of worker welfare by building a town too. The town of Mangakino was the first of the government's model construction towns, designed to accommodate hundreds of workers and their families while they worked on the hydro construction projects. Seeing the need to build many more dams and the problems with worker retention, Minister Bob Semple championed the model town as a means to provide better accommodation and some amenities of town life. We shall be able to secure and retain a better and more contented class of workmen than we would be able to obtain in an isolated and unattractive area. A number of these towns will be placed around the country, as the state set about preparing New Zealand for the future. James Ballach describes the social impact thusly. The spasm of public works created camps and towns rather like those of progressive colonisation in the 19th century, strange frontier-like social entities with a tinge of the future as well as the past. As work on Karapiro wound down, many of the workers were then moved to Mangakino with the aim of working on the Maratai plant. Mangakino was built on barren scrub land leased from Nati Kahanunu, and once the dam was completed, Mangakino was on the south shore of Lake Maratai, 
the lake created by the dam. In 1947, there were 300 houses, rising to 500 the following year and 800 by 1950. The population rose from 3,000 in 1949 to 4,300 in 1950 and more than 5,000 in 1952. The ministry was keen to attract young families and there was subsequently a very high birth rate. A maternity hospital was built in 1948 and in the same year a district high school, which had become the largest in the country by 1954. The town's role peaked at 6,400 in 1959 and by the end of 1963 had fallen to just 2,000. The population at the last census was just under 750, with Mangakino boasting more unoccupied houses than occupied ones. A Waikato Hydro Welfare Association was formed at Karapiro in 1946 and was transferred to Mangakino in 1948. The association set up and ran recreational activities like a cinema and the Mangakino Chronicle newspaper, which had a circulation of over 1,100. The Welfare Association was the only form of local representation, as there were no ratepayers and no local authority. From James Ballach again. The new towns had no old people, few teenagers, some couples and many single men. They were run by the Ministry of Works, known as Uncle Mo, a play on Uncle Joe Stalin. The project engineer is a town boss, a sort of mayor, arbitrator and decision maker. Uncle Mo's engineering record was good, his social welfare record less good. Workers' families lived in 500 square foot houses, managers in 1,000 square foot houses. Loneliness and apathy and social disruption were common and ethnic diversity was considerable. Māori and immigrants made up half the workers in some towns. This was the face of the future, but the future was not quite here yet. While Uncle Mo might have been a tongue-in-cheek nickname, there was still a strong current of socialism in the camps. The union was a strong presence in the town. In 1947, a Mangakino branch of the Communist Party was formed, and their newspaper, the Mangakino Spark, was the only one in town for almost a year before the Chronicle was formed. Relations between the union members and the site bosses were tense, with Uncle Mo trying to have the secretary of the workers' union, Al Clapham, transferred to a different site. This resulted in a strike, which the government described as a communist plot. When this happened in 1948, the government was still the first Labour government, that had been so strongly influenced by the men who worked on the Waitaki Dam at the start of the 30s. But their position on workers' welfare had obviously hardened. Industrial unrest continued, with the Mangakino branch of the workers' union striking in 1951 for a month in solidarity with the watersiders. The first project that the employees housed at Mangakino worked on was Maratai. Construction started in 1946 on an arch dam that would be 133 metres high and 87 metres wide when completed. When it started generating power in 1954, it was the largest station in the country, with five 36 megawatt turbines putting out a total of 180 megawatts. Maratai 2 was started in 1959, with an intake channel being dug alongside the river, leading to a second power plant. However, after Labour lost the election in 1960, the incoming national government had different power priorities, and work was halted in 1961. Construction was resumed in 1967 and Maratai 2 was completed in 1971 with a further five turbines generating 180 megawatts bringing the total for both Maratai plants to 360 megawatts, the largest of the Waikato schemes. There are a number of other Waikato schemes that were constructed in this period and I'm going to run through them briefly. Fakamaru was started in 1949 after a 10km road was built from Mangakino to the site of the dam. A concrete gravity dam, and then an earth dam, form Lake Fakamaru, 
with a powerhouse that spills water into Lake Maratai. Put into operation in May of 1956, it has four 25 megawatt turbines, contributing 100 megawatts in total. Atia Muri was next, with construction beginning in 1953. Some workers came from Mangakino, while others lived in public works camp on site, which housed up to 500 people at points. It has four 21 megawatt turbines, for a total of 84 megawatts. Waipapa is the smallest scheme on the Waikato, built from 1955 to 1961, downstream from Maratai and upstream from Arapuni, which was mentioned in the previous episode. It has three Kaplan turbines, each generating 17 megawatts, for a total of 51 megawatts. Oakuri was built from 1956 to 1961, upstream of Atiamuri. Lake Oakuri is the largest artificial lake in the North Island, but in the process of creating this lake, two-thirds of the Oraki Karako geothermal area, including a number of geysers, were submerged. The plant has four 28 megawatt turbines, which produce a total of 112 megawatts. There is one final plant on the Waikato, Aratiatia, that we will look at in more detail in the next episode. It produces 90 megawatts with three 30 megawatt turbines and was built from 1959 to 1964. With Aratiatia complete, 89% of the head from Lake Taupo to the sea was utilised in hydrogeneration. The eight plants are, starting from Lake Taupo and heading down the river, Aratiatia, which produces 90 megawatts, Oakuri, 112 megawatts, Atiamuri, 84 megawatts, Fakamaru, 100 megawatts, Maratai 1 and 2, 360 megawatts, Waipapa, 51 megawatts, Arapuni, 200 megawatts, and Karapiro, 90 megawatts. While the multiple schemes on the Waikato were addressing supply in the North Island, demand was again pushing up against the limits of supply in the South. Though the schemes in the lower half of the mainland were larger and further apart than those up north, some of the lessons that Uncle Mo had learnt were applied here too. Following on from Waitaki in the mid-1930s, Roxburgh was to be the next major South Island scheme, and the first on the Clutha River. The Clutha has the greatest flow of any of New Zealand's rivers, and was always likely to be tapped for hydropower once we had the engineering capacity. After investigations along the river, the site was finally selected in March of 1949. The project had to balance the size of the dam with the flood risk to towns upstream, particularly Alexandra and Clyde, but also those further inland, including Queenstown and Wanaka. A village was built for the construction. Roxborough's construction camp sprung up from nothing in 1946 to a full town in 1953 and was nothing again by 1957, according to James Balich. It housed more than 3,000 people at its peak, with a primary school roll that reached 550. It had sports grounds, churches, a library, a cinema and even a TAB. Shifts at the dam ran 24 hours a day, 6 days a week. There were big problems finding enough labour, skilled or unskilled. There was a massive construction boom post-war all over the country, including a number of other hydro projects in the North Island. It wasn't easy to attract people to central Otago, with its bitter winters and relentless summers. Part of the work was contracted out to a British company who brought 82 staff and 322 workmen with them. The project still wasn't going to schedule, but the government didn't have the capacity to step in and finish the project. The construction company Downers were added to the project team, and a new date of February 1957 was set for completion. After some good progress in 1955, the dam was three quarters complete by the start of 1956. The dam itself took over 750,000 cubic yards of concrete, 
The lake began filling in early July 1956, with power being generated from July the 23rd. Roxborough was officially opened on November the 3rd 1956, with eight 40 megawatt turbines for a total of 320 megawatts, making it the largest power station in the country until Benmore. In the previous episode, I covered the Waitaki scheme in some detail. Following the completion of Roxborough, Uncle Mo set its sights back on this river with a series of further stations that would make it the most important river for power generation in the country. Benmore was the first project of this greater Waitaki scheme, and it was the largest construction project ever undertaken in New Zealand by volume of material moved. The water contained by the dam created Lake Benmore, the largest artificial lake in the country, with a volume of 1.25 billion litres of water, more water than Wellington Harbour. With six turbines, each generating 90 megawatts of power, it was the largest power station in the country until Manapori came online. While some of this power was for the South Island, much of it was sent north over Cook Strait via the high-voltage DC line, which we will get to later. But first, Benmore. The project was commissioned in 1958, with men from the Roxburgh Dam moving on to this. They didn't just move the men, but the town too. Some 850 buildings were moved 210 kilometres from Roxburgh to Otamatata, the construction town for the Waitaki Valley projects. This meant that the houses were shifted on trucks over the Lindus Pass, which wasn't even a fully sealed road at this point. If you've driven the Lindus, especially during winter, you'll be able to imagine how challenging it was to get a fully laden truck up and over this rugged and isolated road. The sparse, dry, barren expanse of this part of the country and the long distances between signs of human habitation give the impression that it is a bit of a wasteland. It's so otherworldly that it has even been used as a filming location for a number of westerns, with the landscape seeming to fit better with the deserts of New Mexico than the lush backcountry of New Zealand. But it wasn't always this way. The Mackenzie Basin, known as Te Manahuna, was a key part of the Kaitahu Mahingakai network. It was an area of renown for the abundance of weka and of eel, the Waitaki River was a well-travelled route, as hapu from both the east and south of Te Waipunamu would travel up the river to Te Manahuna on seasonal food collecting expeditions. At the top of the Waitaki Valley is the town of Omarama, from which you can either head over the Lindus Pass towards Wanaka, and from there to the west coast via the Haas Pass, or you can turn north and into the Mackenzie Basin. Omarama was established as Te Aomarama by Hipa Te Maiharoa in 1877. A religious leader and prophet, he claimed that this inland area had not been sold to the crown and belonged to Iwi. Te Maiharoa and about 150 protesters occupied the site for two years before the Minister of Native Affairs, John Sheehan, gave the order for police to evict the protesters. An inspector and 12 constables arrived to enforce the eviction, but the protesters refused to leave. Te Maiharoa was moved on, but his name remained. The impact of hydroelectric generation on the history of this area was largely ignored for more than a century until the Resource Management Act and the Naitahu Treaty Settlement in the 90s started to give more of a voice to Māori. Otematata is a small village not far from Omarama as you drive back towards the east coast down the Waitaki Valley. As with many of these intentional construction towns, the population peaked during construction, hitting around 4,000 in the mid-60s. They had a welfare organisation which set up all manner of clubs and activities, including a newspaper called the Otamatata Chronicle. At the last census, the population was listed as just 186, with 111 occupied dwellings compared to 336 unoccupied ones. When construction was finished, Uncle Mo sold off many of the houses, 
including to clubs and unions who still use them as holiday homes. If you're a member of the PSA, I can highly recommend their holiday home which is there. Many of the homes were removed and shipped off elsewhere, leaving ghostly streets that wind their way around with no dwellings on them. As I mentioned, this was the largest construction project in New Zealand history and required a staggering amount of earth to be moved. At its peak, it employed 1,550 workers. This involved some big machines, which would often attract large numbers of spectators. An observation point was built that looked across the site, which registered 200,000 interested visitors in a year, with up to 6,000 a day on occasion. The lake was the biggest man-made lake in the country, flooding a number of high country sheep stations. Uncle Mo was starting to think about the environmental impacts of these massive man-made disruptions to the natural world. They started by planting 50,000 trees along the newly created shoreline, with a number of picnic areas for people to sit and soak it all in. The diversion gates were lowered on November the 30th of 1964, and the lake started to fill. As the river below the dam was now running dry, Uncle Mo had to rescue more than 50,000 fish that were at risk of dying in the increasingly small pools on the riverbed. Fishing for introduced species, along with powerboating, are some of the biggest recreational activities that bring people to this region, and maintaining this fish stock was an important consideration. It took until January the 18th, 1965, for the lake to fill. Benmore was a rarity for a major construction project, in that it came in both ahead of time and under its budget, which was, incidentally, $62 million, or about $2.5 billion in 2018 New Zealand dollars. The workers of Otamatata now turned their attention downstream to Aviemore. Just upstream from Waitaki, Aviemore created the second biggest lake in the country, flooding four sheep stations. During the construction of the dam, an artificial spawning run was built, so that the game fish could continue to swim upriver for spawning. The one kilometre long race is the only spawning tributary for brown and rainbow trout in Lake Waitaki, and is used by two to 400 fish each season. Aviemore has four 55 megawatt turbines, generating 220 megawatts. Benmore and Aviemore, as well as Waitaki itself, make up the three stations in the Waitaki Valley. I'll talk about the developments on the upper Waitaki and in subsequent episodes. It's worth just stopping to consider the effect of the dams on this part of the country. From Kūrau up into Omarama and then into the Mackenzie country, the Waitaki runs through some of the least populated areas of the country. It's a massive river with huge catchment which made it a great place for hydro schemes. But there was also a sense that there was nothing here, so it didn't really matter if the rivers were dammed and some of the valleys were flooded. Of course, this was never true. The Māori who had lived in the area viewed it as a source of food, and there are around 300 historic campsites along the river valley. There were a number of rocky outcrops and caves along this route that were the ideal canvases for rock art. Many of these historic sites of Māori art were submerged by the hydro schemes, an act of cultural vandalism that would surely not be permissible in this day and age. Part of the rationale for building these large schemes in the South Island was that the power would be sent to the north. This was clearly a pretty technical project, and at the point that the cables were made, they were the longest and heaviest ever made. The idea of linking the two islands had been floated for a while, but there was always questions about the reliability of such a project. It was finally approved by Cabinet in 1961, and was open by 1965. The project was much larger than just the cable across the strait. Power had to be carried from the point of generation, in this case Benmore, all the way up to Fighting Bay above Port Underwood in the Marlborough Sounds. This involved 534 kilometres of lines, carried by 1623 steel pylons. This work was completed by January of 1965. 
The strait itself required 40 kilometres of cable, which was laid by a boat called the MV Fotinia that was converted specifically for the operation. The Fotinia left Otaranga Bay on the Wellington side at noon on November the 12th, 1964. It had reached Fighting Bay by midnight. The process was then repeated again for the second and third cables, and all were laid by December the 13th. Given the notoriously difficult conditions in this body of water, it seemed to go remarkably smoothly. The whole project is referred to as the high voltage DC link, rather than the Cook Strait cable, because of both the length of the lines in the South Island and the method of transmission. AC power was converted to DC at Benmore and then carried up the country and under the strait to Hayward's substation where it is converted back to AC and fed into the wider network. The project was opened by PM Keith Holyoke on April the 1st 1965 when he pushed a switch at the Benmore station that turned on both the station and the HVDC. The cable originally carried 600 megawatts but was upgraded in the early 90s and now carries double that. The period from the end of the Second World War through till the end of the 60s really was the golden age of hydropower plants in New Zealand. The country was emerging from both the shadow of war and the shadow of Britain, and electricity was a symbol of the new, modern nation. Kiwis had an insatiable demand for power, and the state responded by building a series of larger and more efficient power stations. This period saw the development of seven schemes on the Waikato River, harnessing the power for the Upper North Island. Most of these plants were built by men living and working in close proximity to the schemes, in towns operated by Uncle Mo. Towns like Mangakino, Roxburgh and Otamatata boomed for a decade or so before busting almost completely, leaving these vestigial villages as a reminder to the cult of progress. The dams in the South Island especially were remarkable feats of engineering, showing the confidence that man and state felt they could exercise over nature. The impacts of these projects were significant, and in some respects are only just beginning to be fully understood. Man had reshaped the Waikato, the Waitaki and the Mackenzie in the image of the state, but largely ignored the people who had been there before. Perhaps the greatest victory of progress over the elements was the high voltage DC line that crossed Cook Strait. It used the waters of the Waitaki to generate power at Benmore, then carried it up the country and across the sea to sate the demands of the north. The waka and the fish were connected for the first time since Maui had thrown his line over the side of the canoe. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the increasing consciousness of the changes wrought by these dams and the birth of the environmental movement in this country. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do tell people on Twitter or iTunes or Facebook or even IRL. Dam the River is researched, written and presented by me, James Macbeth Dan and recorded and mixed at Studio 574 in Christchurch.